Chapter 15 of The Spirit of the Age, or Contemporary Portraits, by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jesse Zuba. Chapter 15. John Scott, First Earl of Eldon, and William Wilberforce. Lord Eldon and Mr. Wilberforce. Lord Eldon is an exceedingly good-natured man but this does not prevent him, like other good-natured people, from consulting his own ease or interest. The character of good nature, as it is called, has been a good deal mistaken, and the present Chancellor is not a bad illustration of the grounds of the prevailing error. When we happen to see an individual whose countenance is all tranquillity and smiles, who is full of good humor and pleasantry, whose manners are gentle and conciliating, who is uniformly temperate in his expressions, and punctual and just in his everyday dealings, we are apt to conclude from so fair an outside that all is conscience and tender heart within also, and that such a one would not hurt a fly, and neither would he without a motive. But mere good nature, or what passes in the world for such, is often no better than indolent selfishness. A person distinguished and praised for this quality will not needlessly offend others, because they may retaliate and besides, it ruffles his own temper. He likes to enjoy a perfect calm, and to live in an interchange of kind offices. He suffers few things to irritate or annoy him. He has a fine oiliness in his disposition, which smooths the waves of passion as they rise. He does not enter into the quarrels or enmities of others, bears their calamities with patience. He listens to the din and clang of war, the earthquake, and the hurricane of the political and moral world, with the temper and spirit of a philosopher. No act of injustice puts him beside himself. The follies and absurdities of mankind never give him a moment's uneasiness. He has none of the ordinary causes of fretfulness or chagrin that torment others from the undue interest they take in the conduct of their neighbors or in the public good. None of these idle or frivolous sources of discontent that make such havoc with the peace of human life ever discompose his features or alter the serenity of his pulse. If a nation is robbed of its rights, if wretches hang that ministers may dine, the laughing jest still collects in his eye. The cordial squeeze of the hand is still the same. But tread on the toe of one of these amiable and imperturbable mortals, or let a lump of soot fall down the chimney and spoil their dinners, and see how they will bear it. All their patience is confined to the accidents that befall others. All their good humor is to be resolved into giving themselves no concern about anything but their own ease and self-indulgence. Their charity begins and ends at home. Their being free from the common infirmities of temper is owing to their indifference to the common feelings of humanity, and if you touch the sore place, they betray more resentment and break out, like spoiled children, into greater fractiousness than others, partly from a degree of selfishness, and partly because they are taken by surprise and mad to think they have not guarded every point against annoyance or attack by a habit of callous insensibility and pampered indolence. An instance of what we mean occurred but the other day. An allusion was made in the House of Commons to something in the proceedings in the Court of Chancery, and the Lord Chancellor comes to his place in the Court with the statement in his hand, fire in his eyes, and a direct charge of falsehood in his mouth, without knowing anything certain of the matter, without making any inquiry into it, without using any precaution or putting the least restraint upon himself, 
and all on no better authority than a common newspaper report. The thing was, not that we are inputting any strong blame in this case, we merely bring it as an illustration, it touched himself, his office, the inviolability of his jurisdiction, the unexceptionableness of his proceedings, and the wet blanket of the Chancellor's temper instantly took fire like tinder. All the fine balancing was at an end. All the doubts, all the delicacy, all the candor, real or affected, all the chances that there might be a mistake in the report, all the decencies to be observed towards a member of the house, are overlooked by the blindness of passion, and the wary judge pounces upon the paragraph without mercy, without a moment's delay, or the smallest attention to forms. This was indeed serious business. There was to be no trifling here. Every instant was an age till the Chancellor had discharged his sense of indignation on the head of the indiscreet interloper on his authority. Had it been another person's case, another person's dignity that had been compromised, another person's conduct that had been called in question, who doubts but that the matter might have stood over till the next term, that the noble lord would have taken the newspaper home in his pocket, that he would have compared it carefully with other newspapers, that he would have written in the most mild and gentlemanly terms to the honorable member to inquire into the truth of the statement, that he would have watched a convenient opportunity good-humoredly to ask other honorable members what all this was about, that the greatest caution and fairness would have been observed, and that to this hour the lawyer's clerks and the junior counsel would have been in the greatest admiration of the Chancellor's nicety of discrimination, and the utter inefficacy of the heats, importunities, haste, and passions of others to influence his judgment? This would have been true, yet his readiness to decide and to condemn where he himself is concerned shows that passion is not dead in him, nor subject to the control of reason, but that self-love is the mainspring that moves it, though on all beyond that limit he looks with the most perfect calmness and philosophic indifference. Resistless passion sways us to the mood of what it likes or loathes. All people are passionate in what concerns themselves, and in what they take an interest in. The range of this last is different in different persons, but the want of passion is but another name for the want of sympathy and imagination. The Lord Chancellor's impartiality and conscientious exactness is proverbial, and is, we believe, as inflexible as it is delicate in all cases that occur in the stated routine of legal practice. The impatience, the irritation, the hopes, the fears, the confident tone of the applicants move him not a jot from his intended course. He looks at their claims with the lackluster eye of professional indifference. Power and influence apart, his next strongest passion is to indulge in the exercise of professional learning and skill to amuse himself with the dry details and intricate windings of the law of equity. He delights to balance a straw, to see a feather turn the scale, or make it even again, and divides and subdivides a scruple to the smallest fraction. He unravels the web of argument and pieces it together again, folds it up and lays it aside, that he may examine it more at his leisure. He hugs indecision to his breast, and takes home a modest doubt or a nice point to solace himself with it in protracted, luxurious dalliance. Delay seems, in his mind, to be of the very essence of justice. He no more hurries through a question than if no one was waiting for the result, and he was merely a dilettante, fanciful judge, who played at my Lord Chancellor, and busied himself with quibbles and punctilios as an idle hobby and harmless illusion. The phlegm of the Chancellor's disposition gives one almost a surfeit of impartiality and candor. We are sick of the eternal poise of childish dilatoriness, 
and would wish law and justice to be decided at once by a cast of the dice as they were in Rabelais, rather than be kept in frivolous and tormenting suspense. But there is a limit even to this extreme refinement and scrupulousness of the Chancellor. The understanding acts only in the absence of the passions. At the approach of the lodestone, the needle trembles and points to it. The air of a political question has a wonderful tendency to brace and quicken the learned lord's faculties. The breath of a court speedily oversets a thousand objections and scatters the cobwebs of his brain. The secret wish of power is a thumping make-weight, where all is so nicely balanced beforehand. In the case of a celebrated beauty and heiress, and the brother of a noble lord, the chancellor hesitated long, and went through the forms as usual. But whoever doubted where all this indecision would end, no man in his senses, for a single instant, we shall not press this point, which is rather a ticklish one. Some persons thought that from entertaining a fellow feeling on the subject, the chancellor would have been ready to favor the poet laureate's application to the court of chancery for an injunction against Watt Tyler. His lordship's sentiments on such points are not so variable. He has too much at stake. He recollected the year 1794, though Mr. Southey had forgotten it. The personal always prevails over the intellectual, where the latter is not backed by strong feeling and principle, where remote and speculative objects do not excite a predominant interest and passion, gross and immediate ones are sure to carry the day, even in ingenuous and well-disposed minds. The will yields necessarily to some motive or other, and where the public good or distant consequences excite no sympathy in the breast, either from short-sightedness or an easiness of temperament that shrinks from any violent effort or painful emotion, self-interest, indolence, the opinion of others, a desire to please, the sense of personal obligation, come in and fill up the void of public spirit, patriotism, and humanity. The best men in the world, in their own natural dispositions or in private life, for this reason, often become the most dangerous public characters, from their pliancy to the unruly passions of others, and from their having no set-off in strong moral stamina to the temptations that are held out to them, if, as is frequently the case, they are men of versatile talent or patient industry. Lord Eldon has one of the best-natured faces in the world. It is pleasant to meet him in the street, plodding along with an umbrella under his arm, without one trace of pride, of spleen, or discontent in his whole demeanor, void of offense, with almost rustic simplicity and honesty of appearance, a man that makes friends at first sight, and could hardly make enemies if he would, and whose only fault is that he cannot say nay to power, or subject himself to an unkind word or look from a king or a minister. He is a thoroughbred Tory, Others boggle, or are at fault in their career, or give back at a pinch. They split into different factions, have various objects to distract them, their private friendships or antipathies stand in their way. But he has never flinched, never gone back, never missed his way. He is an out-and-outer in this respect. His allegiance has been without flaw, like one entire and perfect chrysolite. His implicit understanding is a kind of taffeta lining to the crown, his servility has assumed an air of the most determined independence, and he has read his history in a prince's eyes. There has been no stretch of power attempted in his time that he has not seconded, no existing abuse so odious or so absurd that he has not sanctioned it. He has gone the whole length of the most unpopular designs of ministers. When the heavy artillery of interest, power, and prejudice is brought into the field, the paper pellets of the brain go for nothing. 
His labyrinth of nice, ladylike doubts explodes like a mine of gunpowder. The chancellor may weigh and palter. The courtier is decided, the politician is firm, and riveted to his place in the cabinet. On all the great questions that have divided party opinion or agitated the public mind, the chancellor has been found uniformly and without a single exception on the side of prerogative and power, and against every proposal for the advancement of freedom. He was a strenuous supporter of the wars and coalitions against the principles of liberty abroad. He has been equally zealous in urging or defending every act and infringement of the Constitution, for abridging it at home. He at the same time opposes every amelioration of the penal laws on the alleged ground of his abhorrence of even the shadow of innovation. He has studiously set his face against Catholic emancipation. He labored hard in his vocation to prevent the abolition of the slave trade. He was attorney general in the trials for high treason in 1794, and the other day in giving his opinion on the Queen's trial, shed tears and protested his innocence before God. This was natural and to be expected, but on all occasions he is to be found at his post, true to the call of prejudice, of power, to the will of others, and to his own interest. In the whole of his public career, and with all the goodness of his disposition, he has not shown so small a drop of pity as a wren's eye. He seems to be on his guard against everything liberal and humane as his weak side. Others relax in their obsequiousness, either from satiety or disgust, or a hankering after popularity, or a wish to be thought above narrow prejudices. The Chancellor alone is fixed and immovable. Is it want of understanding or of principle? No, it is want of imagination, a phlegmatic habit, an excess of false complacence and good nature. Common humanity and justice are little better than vague terms to him. He acts upon his immediate feelings and least irksome impulses. The king's hand is velvet to the touch. The woolsack is a seat of honor and profit. That is all he knows about the matter. As to abstract metaphysical calculations, the ox that stands staring at the corner of the street troubles his head as much about them as he does. Yet this last is a very good sort of animal, with no harm or malice in him, unless he is goaded on to mischief and then it is necessary to keep out of his way or warn others against him. Mr. Wilberforce is a less perfect character in his way. He acts from mixed motives. He would willingly serve two masters, God and Mammon. He is a person of many excellent and admirable qualifications, but he has made a mistake in wishing to reconcile those that are incompatible. He has a most winning eloquence, specious, persuasive, familiar, silver-tongued, is amiable, charitable, conscientious, pious, loyal, humane, tractable to power, accessible to popularity, honoring the king, and no less charmed with the homage of his fellow citizens. What lacks he then? Nothing but an economy of good parts. By aiming at too much he has spoiled all, and neutralized what might have been an estimable character, distinguished by signal services to mankind. A man must take his choice not only between virtue and vice, but between different virtues, Otherwise he will not gain his own approbation or secure the respect of others. The graces and accomplishments of private life mar the man of business and the statesman. There is a severity, a sternness, a self-denial, and a painful sense of duty required in the one which ill befits the softness and sweetness which should characterize the other. Loyalty, patriotism, friendship, humanity are all virtues, but may they not sometimes clash? By being unwilling to forego the praise due to any, we may forfeit the reputation of all, and instead of uniting the suffrages of the whole world in our favor, 
we may end in becoming a sort of byword for affectation, cant, hollow professions, trimming, fickleness, and effeminate imbecility. It is best to choose, and act up to some one leading character, as it is best to have some settled profession or regular pursuit in life. We can readily believe that Mr. Wilberforce's first object and principle of action is to do what he thinks right. His next, and that we fear is of almost equal weight with the first, is to do what will be thought so by other people. He is always at a game of hawk and buzzard between these two. His conscience will not budge unless the world goes with it. He does not seem greatly to dread the denunciation in Scripture, but rather to court it. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. We suspect he is not quite easy in his mind, because West India planters and Guinea traders do not join in his praise. His ears are not strongly enough tuned to drink in the execrations of the spoiler and the oppressor as the sweetest music. It is not enough that one half of the human species, the images of God carved in ebony, as old Fuller calls them, shout his name as a champion and a savior through vast burning zones and moisten their parched lips with the gush of gratitude for deliverance from chains. He must have a prime minister drink his health at a cabinet dinner for aiding to rivet on those of his country and of Europe. He goes hand in heart along with the government and all their notions of legitimacy and political aggrandizement in the hope that they will leave him a sort of no man's ground of humanity in the great desert where his reputation for benevolence and public spirit may spring up and flourish till its head touches the clouds and it stretches out its branches to the farthest part of the earth. He has no mercy on those who claim a property in negro slaves as so much livestock on their estates. The country rings with the applause of his wit, his eloquence, and his indignant appeals to common sense and humanity on this subject. But not a word has he to say, not a whisper, does he breathe against the claim set up by the despots of the earth over their continental subjects, but does everything in his power to confirm and sanction it. He must give no offense. Mr. Wilberforce's humanity will go all lengths that it can, with safety and discretion, but it is not to be supposed that it should lose him his seat for Yorkshire, the smile of majesty, or the countenance of the loyal and pious. He is anxious to do all the good he can without hurting himself or his fair fame. His conscience and his character compound matters very amicably. He rather patronizes honesty than is a martyr to it. His patriotism, his philanthropy, are not so ill-bred as to quarrel with his loyalty or to banish him from the first circles. He preaches vital Christianity to untutored savages, and tolerates its worst abuses in civilized states. He thus shows his respect for religion without offending the clergy or circumscribing the sphere of his usefulness. There is in all this an appearance of a good deal of cant and tricking. His patriotism may be accused of being servile, his humanity ostentatious, his loyalty conditional, his religion a mixture of fashion and fanaticism out upon such half-faced fellowship. Mr. Wilberforce has the pride of being familiar with the great, the vanity of being popular, the conceit of an approving conscience. He is coy in his approaches to power. His public spirit is, in a manner, under the rose. He thus reaps the credit of independence without the obloquy, and secures the advantages of servility without incurring any obligations. He has two strings to his bow, he by no means neglects his worldly interests, while he expects a bright reversion in the skies. Mr. Wilberforce is far from being a hypocrite, but he is, we think, as fine a specimen of moral equivocation as can well be conceived. 
a hypocrite is one who is the very reverse of or who despises the character he pretends to be mr wilberforce would be all that he pretends to be and he is it in fact as far as words plausible theories good inclinations and easy services go but not in heart and soul or so as to give up the appearance of any one of his pretensions to preserve the reality of any other he carefully chooses his ground to fight the battles of loyalty religion and humanity and it is such as is always safe and advantageous to himself this is perhaps hardly fair and it is of dangerous or doubtful tendency lord eldon for instance is known to be a thorough-paced ministerialist his opinion is only that of his party but mr wilberforce is not a party man he is the more looked up to on this account but not with sufficient reason by tampering with different temptations and personal projects he has all the air of the most perfect independence and gains a character for impartiality and candor when he is only striking a balance in his mind between the eclat of differing from a minister on some vantage ground and the risk or odium that may attend it he carries all the weight of his artificial popularity over to the government on vital points and hard-run questions while they in return lend him a little of the gilding of court favor to set off his disinterested philanthropy and tremontane enthusiasm as a leader or a follower he makes an odd jumble of interests by virtue of religious sympathy he has brought the saints over to the side of the abolition of negro slavery this his adversaries think hard and stealing a march upon them what have these saints to do with freedom or reform of any kind mr wilberforce's style of speaking is not quite parliamentary it is halfway between that and evangelical he is altogether a double entente the very tone of his voice is a double entente it winds and undulates and glides up and down on texts of scripture and scraps from paley and trite sophistry and pathetic appeals to his hearers in a faltering inprogressive sidelong way like those birds of weak wing that are borne from their straightforward course by every little breath that under heaven is blown something of this fluctuating time-serving principle was visible even in the great question of the abolition of the slave trade he was at one time half inclined to surrender it into mr pitt's dilatory hands and seemed to think the gloss of novelty was gone from it and the gaudy colouring of popularity sunk into the sable ground from which it rose it was however persisted in and carried to a triumphant conclusion mr wilberforce said too little on this occasion of one compared with whom he was but the frontispiece to that great chapter in the history of the world the mask the varnishing and painting the man that effected it by herculean labours of body and equally gigantic labours of mind was clarkson the true apostle of human redemption on that occasion and who it is remarkable resembles in his person and lineaments more than one of the apostles in the cartoons of raphael he deserves to be added to the twelve after all the best as well as most amusing comment on the character just described was that made by sheridan who being picked up in no very creditable plight by the watch and asked rather roughly who he was made answer i am mr wilberforce the guardians of the night conducted him home with all the honors due to grace and nature End of chapter fifteen